0: Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Today I'm speaking with Joey Messina-Dorning. Joey is a Grammy-nominated music producer and engineer. He was an engineer on Haim's Women in Music Part 3, which has been nominated at the Grammys this year for Album of the Year. He has also worked with artists such as Mason, Truesdale, Kate Bollinger, and May. Raised in LA, he studied music production at USC's Thornton School of Music. He currently works as an audio engineer for Matsor Projects, the music company of Rustem Batmanglish, who was a member of Vampire Weekend and has produced artists such as Haim, Maggie Rogers, and Frank Ocean. Joey, thanks so much for talking with me. It's a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, so usually I start these interviews by sort of asking my guests about their background and their education and how they got to doing what they do, but... I actually wanted to start somewhere a little bit different with you. I I feel like nowadays there's a little bit of confusion in the mainstream about what a music producer or an engineer or a person who mixes or masters an album actually does. I mean, especially today when so many people can essentially make music on GarageBand at home, it's a little trickier for the common person to define what a music producer's role is today. And it even changes genre to genre. So I guess I just wanted to start off by asking you, how do you look at your role as a a music producer or an engineer? For sure.
1: Yeah. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head that like, it really depends on a project to project basis, as well as a genre to genre basis as well. It's interesting because even I get kind of tripped up of like thinking about every role that I play, you know, but because I am lucky enough to be working with cool artists that trust me to kind of just like take their song and we do it together and take it from start to finish, basically. um, If I'm producing a song, it's most likely the case that I'm going to be the tracking engineer. I'll probably help with the songwriting. I'll probably help with the arrangement. I'm going to play as many instruments as I feel that I want to, you know, into my comfort level of knowing that, hey, probably someone else can play this guitar part better than I can. And if we have the funds to farm that out, you know, then I absolutely will. I'll probably do some preliminary mixing if we're going to send it to someone for it to be mixed. But in most cases, I'm going to be the mixer as well. So that's kind of just like going along throughout the process. I'm mixing as I go so that every version of the song sounds better than the last. In some cases, at the end of the day, I'll probably master it as well, which I don't prefer to because I do think that the concept of having that separate set of ears along any part of the process is huge. But some cases I am ending up playing every single one of those roles in a song.
0: And maybe just even more for the audience, let's kind of maybe delineate like the concept of engineering from the concept of mixing to mastering. So why don't you walk me through like how each of those roles differs and and what the process is like going from, you know, recording the stuff to, to getting it out on Spotify. Definitely.
1: So I think engineer as a role is the one that has stayed truest to its form that it's been throughout the course of recording music in that a very true engineer, most commonly found in a large format recording studio, is the person that is actually setting up microphones, setting up outboard gear to shape sounds of recording the live sound, whether that be vocals or drums or anything that is going into a record that's made with organic instrumentation that actually produces analog sound. You know, it was their role to get it from the studio onto tape. Now it's their role to get it from the studio into the computer, (laughs) basically. And then to keep going with different roles that can be played, so the mixing engineer is much more of a recent role that has blossomed in the music industry where not even too terribly long ago it wasn't a very popular role because either you were leaving the studio with a pretty much mixed record or the producer was doing that as well but this I, this concept of you finish producing the song it's fully engineered it's fully produced the artist is happy with it and you're sending the session the multi-track recording To a separate person who all they're doing is imparting their mixing skills onto it and basically fine tuning EQ and compression and saturation and all sorts of um, different processing to improve the total
0: sonic quality of all the tracks as they work together. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. How different, just out of curiosity, how different does something sound? Have you heard major differences between the time that, you know, it comes out of the room till the time the mixing engineers had their hands on it? Well, I mean, that just depends completely on who you're paying to mix
1: your record, you know, (laughs) because because that can be a deal breaker for some people of why they do and don't or won't want to work with someone, you know? I mean, in the case of one of my favorite mixers, Dave Fridman, who... I've had the pleasure of hearing some of the pre tracks, whether it be on the Heim record or some of Rostam's stuff, go um, before he received the files to after him receiving the files and just like mind-blowingly different. Mm. And also the difference between mix V1 to mix V12 from Dave is also going to be drastically different because we're going to keep kind of going back and forth, you know? Sure. But then there are other people, you know, in the case of like Manny Mariquin, he, one of his big things is you send him a session, he keeps every single plugin on it that you sent to him. It doesn't change at all. He only improves off of what you've already given him. So in that case, you might be getting a record back from Manny that in some cases could sound almost identical to yours with a fatter kick drum and some more booty in the low end and that's all he felt that he needed to do and then you know that analog judge of running it through his, some of his gear that he has
0: yeah I feel like in any art form people tend to underestimate the the value of like a very small technical tweak and how different the experiences for whoever the person is on the receiving end, it can be dramatic. I think about theater productions and lighting. I had a, a guest on uh, some time ago named Camilla Tassi, who's a, a projection designer. So she designs projections for uh, various stage productions and, and operas and stuff like that. And she was talking about how sometimes you just project something v- like almost not discernible to the audience member. Like you can't even tell what it is. But it's enough to make a, a significant impact, and and so that it makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying. Just a little bit more of a you know a fatter kick drum, and that's what it takes. You know, yeah, man. But like no joke, exactly
1: what you were saying. I see it all the time. Artists are crazy, and in <laughs> in so many in many cases they have incredible ears, and in every case they've been listening to this song for anywhere from. A couple months to a couple years, the same song. They know how every note sounds. And when you change any of that, if it doesn't move them in a way that's improving their opinion on that song, it's immediate that their response will be incredibly negative and you got to fix that, you know, and that's on you for... And, you know, you got to live with those decisions that you thought that that was an improvement, but... The artist is always right. So if they say it's not an improvement, then you didn't do well.
0: You know, it's part of the collaborative process for sure. Exactly. Uh, and then tell me about, about mastering. I feel like this is the thing that's least understood perhaps of all of those.
1: <laughs> well, again, speaking even further to the smallest minute technical changes in mastering, in most cases, you're working with a stereophile of the song they could send you almost a file that's very similar to what will be uploaded to Spotify, let's say, or printed onto the vinyl. The mastering stage is the final step of the process where, in a lot of cases, you're the last person to say, this is the final product, and this is the best that it could be. And one of the biggest things to me about mastering is every day you're listening to a a dozen songs maybe what your goal as a mastering engineer is is to make the song that you're mastering hold its own to all of the other music that exists in the world in some cases you're trying to make it sound better than some of the other music that people are consuming right now right (laughs) just on a sheer technical level balance pleasing qualities to the ears you don't want to have someone be listening to this and say like wow i'm in pain listening to this right now no and there are some mixes that can they come to me there's they're great mixes but there are some qualities to it where i can listen to them and say this isn't quite cutting it in comparison to other music in this genre that i love and the crazy thing about mastering is Because you're dealing with one file that has 12 guitars and, you know, 40 vocals in it, if you're making one small change, you're not changing a guitar anymore. You're changing the entirety of the mix, the whole sound of the song. It's something that I think all great mastering engineers don't take lightly at all because you can really mess up a song to be... Humble, I'm a good mastering engineer, but I'm not a great mastering engineer yet because that level of being always being consistently able to make every song better than when you received it is an incredible task. And that's definitely what I'm working
0: towards. Gotcha. Yeah, that was very clearly explained. I really appreciate I that. I hope so. No, even for my own, even for my own information, it's great because, you know, I know what these roles are, but, but still it's nice to hear it in those terms. So now that we've got that out of the way, why don't you tell me about, <laughs> about growing up in LA and, and how you got into music production and, and this whole side of music as your specialization. I mean, a lot of producers I know started off on some musical instrument before they decided they wanted to do production and, I know you started out on piano and then and then drums. So why don't you talk about how that panned out, like from childhood to the time you got to to USC, where I met you.
1: Sure, man. Well, um, LA is the best city on earth. I'll fight anyone that says anything different. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've been here my whole life, and I'm sure that has that plays some role in the fact that. I really can't see myself anywhere else, but I really can't. You know, it's it's the place to be, and I I love the fact that I was blessed with the opportunity to grow up here and just be surrounded by music, like, my whole life, which was huge to me from a really young age. Um, both my parents are musicians, and they met in the church guitar choir group um, when when they were 16.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And have been together ever since. And so that's very cute. Um, So yeah, they met around music and that's kind of where I got my intro into music was in the Catholic church, which is hilarious to look back on, you know, and think about that being some of my earliest exposure to um, music. But, you know, my parents always tell the story of, they used to park my stroller next to the drum kit, so it was like destiny. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so it's hilarious, but like, but it is true. Like, I had the opportunity to just be exposed and surrounded and um, just really struck by music my whole life, which was great. And yeah, like you said, I started playing piano at a young age, rocking some scales at eight years old. And uh, yeah, as you would guess, um, I didn't enjoy it very much as an eight year old <laughs> because scales were boring and I just wanted to play some Beatles songs, but my piano teacher, bless her soul, wouldn't let me. That's a good teacher. That's a, it's a good teacher. I know, it's a great teacher. <laughs> and my biggest regret in life is 11 year old me quitting piano because i every day i think about how much better off my musical skills would be if i stuck with it for the entire time and practiced diligently and stuff like that yeah but what are you going to do needless to say i picked up the sticks at age 11 and uh and that was that was a bond for sure so took drum lessons up until i was 16 Usually played drums in all the bands, all the cover bands I was in when I was a a kid, you know, um, was on drumline in high school. And that was kind of like my my formal training in
0: music. But so then you go from playing the drums and then you ended up going to USC's music production program. So how did that switch happen from I want to be a performer, I want to play, to I want to end up doing things on the other side of this?
1: Yeah, so that transition still kind of eludes me also of how I ended up at this at that program and ended up in all these roles that I'm in now but basically the short story of it is that I started teaching myself guitar I just wanted to start playing songs and singing them you know and like and I wanted to start writing my own songs as well and so in kind of like the early half of high school I was a novice guitar player and just starting to write some of my own songs and my cousin gave me this old Tascam 2 in interface that I had no idea how to use he used to use it he was a film director and they used to use it as like their mobile like boom miking I guess
0: back in the day and he was like "Yeah." yeah we still use the zoom h4n h6 sometimes for like indie shoots
1: yeah exactly and so it was like It was like a vintage version of one of those that I had no idea how to use. And I had no idea what preamps were. And I I remember so distinctly, like, some days I would plug a mic cable in and, like, it wouldn't work. And I'd be like, oh, I guess this is one of those days that it doesn't work. And it was literally just, like, online instead of mic, you know. So, of course, it wasn't going to work. But moral of that story was that, yeah, I started tracking into GarageBand and making my own tunes. And then I got, I started getting a little craftier and I took the old Carvin analog mixing console from the church and I started tracking drums and I had no idea that I was even like performing multi-tracking in a way, but basically I would like plug in all the microphones to the mixing board. I would hang the mics from my ceiling with duct tape And like tear all the paint off my walls my parents would be so pissed at me and that's like how I thought it worked you know yeah and I remember I was originally going to apply to the music industry program and and I met with one of the professors and I was telling him what I do and I was like yeah you know I make music and I record my own songs and like I do it like this he was like word like you don't really sound like you want to come to the music industry program. But uh, here's this guy named Rick Schmunk. And he's starting a program that like kind of could be for you. Right. And it was literally all in like the span of a couple months where everything started clicking. Someone told me like, hey, did you know that you're producing music? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. What's that? And so I like looked up like, what production is, you know, kind of literally what we were just talking about. And I was like, oh, I guess I am kind of doing that. And they're like, did you know that? And then Rick was like, yeah, like you're engineering. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like I should learn how to get better at that. <laughs> I am you know? doing that. So I, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. And then, so I bought Logic and like, I got a little more in depth with like what I was doing, but it was so interesting because I didn't even know what I was doing at the time and I had such a severe lack of knowledge behind what I was doing as well. And then, yeah, within like a couple month period, like I kind of, it all clicked for me. I could see where I was going and what I wanted to improve at. And then, yeah, by sheer luck of right place, right time, Rick was like, We're literally creating a program for people exactly like you.
0: I mean, I have to say I'm even more impressed hearing that, having known you through my four years, because you came off as such a pro in the time that I knew you. (laughs) I mean, and and I mean that in like in the best way I, I, I can say it, like, I think it must have been at least three or four times that I went in to record in like the, the music complex whether it was like a jazz thing and I think I asked you to, to do a, a film score that I ended up uh helping someone do for a, a Chapman yeah. a master's thesis film and I mean everything from setting the stuff up to the eventual sound that came out at the end to you know just being a good hang I mean you had all of it so it was it was so great to to get thanks to work man with you. I appreciate that yeah um so tell me about studying at SC you know what I forgot, right? That was the inaugural year of that music production program. So, was it what you expected going in and then what are the kinds of opportunities that you got from it?
1: No. It was not what I expected. Okay. At all. And <laughs> I don't think I don't think it was what they expected and I don't think it was what anyone expected, which was kind of the beauty of it, you know. Um we had meetings at the end of every year where they went cool so like what do you want to learn next year we were all figuring it out as we were going which was really cool and that's not to say that they they had an incredible vision for this program and it's still blasting off currently and I'm very excited to see where it's going to end up in a few years or a decade or so but yeah we were the pilot class and um and it was really cool man there's no way around it that Education in any form is so important. And I'm such a big believer in music education specifically and its importance and its value that it gives you in the longevity of your career, potentially. When I was sitting in 9 a.m. aural skills, (laughs) like trying desperately to hear the differentiation between a half diminished and a fully diminished chord just by my ear... I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die right now. <laughs> like I can't I can't believe that this is happening. But nowadays when I'm sitting in the room and the artist is playing a chord progression and I don't even have to touch a piano to know what key it's in and what chord they're playing, it's invaluable to the speed with which I can work and to the conversations that I can have with the artist because I have that knowledge behind me. You
0: just don't know... Th- how that's going to help you in your career until you get there. At USC, I, I knew you had the chance to work with all different kinds of music ensembles, uh, w- different genres for different purposes. Sometimes film scores. Sometimes it was, you know, a jazz combo recording. Sometimes it's the the pop program and it's more singer songwriter stuff. Sometimes it was an orchestra that you actually got the chance to to work with. So, did you settle on? A kind of music you wanted to be a producer or an engineer for? Or how, how, did, how does that work for you?
1: At USC specifically, I was trying to do as much as humanly possible in the time that I was there. You know, that was my goal was to meet all the people, work in all the genres, you know, and just be like around and willing and able to work with people. So no, I definitely wasn't like picking genres per se i was kind of just like there for the gig when it was there i yeah like i accepted the gig to track tjo in like 118 Mm -hmm, yeah thornton jazz orchestra thornton jazz orchestra bob mincer like a giant (laughs) right you know and who i had never met before but like had seen around i was like oh my god that's bob mincer that's crazy like Uh you know that thing that we all did and, and I had never tracked a big band before. And someone asked me, and they are like, can you do this? And I was like, yeah, totally. And I bombed. I think, I, that's interesting. I want to hear this. Yeah. It's a funny story because I do blame it on what I walked into in that I was told it was my first time ever stepping foot in this room. Someone, someone had told me, hey, we just finished building a little tiny studio in this room. Oh, my God. You know, we... We got some nice preamps in there, 16 channels, like there's a patch bay, everything's ready to rock. And I was like, cool, (laughs) I can do this. And I walk in, I plug in one to one, I go to Pro Tools, I select one, no audio, nothing. And microphone eight was showing up in channel two and phantom power that was connecting to here wasn't actually powering the microphone that I thought it was. Moral of the story was that whoever had wired the patch bay had mislabeled a couple of their DB25 cables, which is like the final cable that connects it to an interface. And so where microphone one should have been going to input one, it was actually going to nine. Oh boy. And where microphone input nine should have been going to nine, it was actually going to one. So everything was switched up on me and, you know, Bob's in there rehearsing the band And I'm trying to figure out what in the world is going on. I'm calling all of the faculty that I have their numbers being like, hey, do you know why this isn't working? They're like, no. Like, oh, my God. Rick came down. He happened to be in the building still. Oh, thank God. Professor Rick Schmunk, (laughs) Professor Rick Schmunk, an all-star man, incredible producer, engineer and he couldn't figure it out (laughs) all right well that gave you some cover at least yeah exactly so that made me feel a little better and i'll never forget like i went up to bob on the first day that i met him and i was like hey i'm really sorry but like you can go home we're not going to be able to record tonight it wasn't even a tjo rehearsal it was a tjo thursday night that everyone put in their schedule ahead of time for a recording session Oh, oh god I know it was no joke I felt devastated but I hung out there until like midnight I remember and I was like I need to figure out why this is wrong and I figured it out and I fixed it but that didn't make up for the fact that I told Bob Minzer to send his band home <laughs> and that we were not recording that night and we made it up and I was there Probably no less than three hours early, making sure that every microphone was perfect. And, you know, I think I think we we got a good session out of it, which was nice. I said yes to a game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when maybe I shouldn't have. But, you know, but you got to do what you got to do. And um,
0: and I learned a, a lot from it. Being from the jazz department, I'm happy to cast aspersions on on that room. And, <sighs> you know, and what, what what we were told it was designed to do and could do and, and what it ended up being able to do were very different things. Um, oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, That's true. For people who are listening, like TMC is basically a retrofitted building from the film school from like 20 years ago. And so it, you know, USC, I feel like has really or the Thornton School and the contemporary music division, I think, has really outgrown that building five years ago and yet is still having to kind of deal with it. Um, and it has some really good things about it. And I had a great education there. And, you know, again, it's not to say that I'm not grateful, but it is one of those things that when I look back on it, I'm like, wow. You know, we used to have, like, we used to see, like, the ceiling tiles, you know, get brown and stuff like that. And you're just like, I can't believe this is the, the room I'm recording this thing in. Yeah. What a time. Um, so, obviously, you know, many of the relationships that, that you made at SC continue until today. So, I know that you're producing a good friend of ours, Jesse Mason, And Working Mm -hmm. with her and so tell me what it's like to to work with a lot of the the same people and and uh, How have things changed has has anything changed from coming out of school and and starting to produce all of our you know our friends But outside of the school environment It's great man. It there's no better feeling in the
1: world than making music with your best friends Not much has changed um, with the people that I've worked with since I was in school In terms of our workflow and how we like going about working together and such. I suppose not. Um, Yeah, which is great. But the one thing that has changed is we've all gotten better at what we do, which is another great feeling in that we can go back and listen to songs that I made with various people our sophomore year of college, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm still making music with them and it brings joy to you to know that you know that you're a better producer or a better songwriter than you were a few years ago. It kind of keeps you going and that you're uh you're doing some good work here. yeah, which is nice. Um, I remember when Jesse and I did about five or six demos for this album over the summer last year. It was just kind of like a a really quick week of getting down a bunch of ideas you know, and very fast paced moving from instruments to instruments and song to song and stuff like that. And we ended up with some pretty cool demos. And we sent them to our good friends Jacob Shabon and Alex Ryan. Yeah. And Jesse Jesse said that uh their initial reaction was, Wow, this really sounds like both of you. Which was a really cool thing to hear because we weren't trying to do anything in that moment necessarily we were just throwing paint onto the page mm-hmm. to get some ideas out and it was really cool to hear an outside opinion say that like it really spoke to them as like genuine to the artists that we are it's great to grow
0: in your talents with the same people so you're currently working for Rustam batman who was a member of the band Vampire Weekend. I was doing some research and I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. And you know, he's (laughs) produced for all kinds of artists, including Haim and Charlie XCX, Maggie Rogers, Frank Ocean. So how did you get that gig? And and what do you do for him? You know, day to day?
1: Yeah. So I currently work as Ross Stam's engineer at his private studio. So basically just like any project that he's on, that he's working on, whether it be producing or we're actually like, we've been in the midst of his solo project for his second LP that he just announced is coming out in June okay which we're super stoked about so in that case I'm just engineering for him for his music you know but anything that he's doing I'm engineering and editing for him um which is really cool and Ross name is actually Unbeknownst to USC is one of his their biggest ambassadors in that <laughs> his network is just chock full of USC people. And he always makes this joke that he only works with people from USC, which is funny. But basically how we got hooked up was that uh, one of my good friends, Julian McClanahan, is his violin player. And they had gone on tour to promote his first album when julian was a senior i think and i was a junior maybe it was the year before that as well but it's hilarious because i i was thinking back on it and i remember thinking that was so cool i was like oh my god julian is killing it like he's on tour with rostam like vampire weekend was one of my favorite bands when i was in high school like that's so incredible um and then yeah i had just left another job working at a studio in North Hollywood. I just graduated and I was kind of taking it easy for about a month or so. And I got a text from Julian that said, hey, man, Rostam is going to be looking for an engineer in the next couple months or so. Would you mind if I threw your name in the hat like I thought of you? And I was like, wow, yeah. Like, I didn't even think anything of it. One, because I was like, oh, it seems like kind of a long shot. Like he's thinking about needing an engineer in a couple months. (laughs) And two, I just straight up didn't hear anything for a couple months. So I forgot about it. And then one day in like September of 2019, I just got a text from Rostam. And he was like, hey, my name is Rostam. I'm a music producer. I live in Echo Park, and I was like, yes, I know who you are. Yes. (laughs) What a great way to introduce yourself, too. That's so funny. Exactly. I know. Such a sweetie. Um, And yeah, and so through that connection of Julian, who we had worked together, I'd engineered some stuff for him at USC, you know, um, always loved watching him play in his various bands throughout my time in college. I got hooked up with Rostam
0: and got the gig. And I've been with him ever since. Yeah, it's a great story. I, not hearing about it for a couple months, forgetting about it, and then realizing that you know you kind of got it is a is a fun feeling for sure. I know, right? That's it- great. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no other way to ask this other than, what's it like to be Grammy nominated, <laughs> and <laughs> and for engineering on an album like you know Heim's Women in Music Part Three, which is like. I mean it's nominated for album of the year. Like that's a that's a huge deal. So what was your your role on that album and and what's your reaction to to sort of finding out about this? It's really cool, man. Um
1: yeah, there's n- there's no other way around it too, of just like feeling so blessed to have worked on something that I knew from when I started work on it that it was we were working on something special, you know. So to have that recognition and to be able to be a part of that is a really great feeling. And I feel very grateful to be a part of it. And it, it's it's great to be able to say that it's nominated for a Grammy and that my name's on that list. So um, it's it's really, really cool. Basically, right when I came on with Rostam as his engineer, they were going on the Heim record. Okay. Um, I think Summer Girl had just come out when I started. And so that was the only song that I didn't work on, obviously, because it was already out. Yeah. Right when I got there, it was like, hey, he was like, I'm trusting that you know how to do all this. And I was like, yeah, I know how to do all this. And it was like, cool. Danielle's coming over (laughs) and like, we're tracking vocals. And I was like, "Okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah, I was I was thrown into it. And I was the engineer on
0: every song that we that we did. That's amazing. That's remarkable. That record is so interesting, too, because we have an, our mutual friend also, Henry Solomon, played saxophone on it, too, which is just so that's two people I know that are connected to this album, which is just something special. It's, it's amazing. I guess this is where we can, you know, I want to sort of get into more of this, the specifics then. So, you know, obviously Heim has a very specific kind of sound. So what's it like when you have to sort of jump into this? What, what are the kind of things you have to adapt to when you're recording a band like this one?
1: Yeah. It it definitely was I think the biggest thing that I learned in my kind of jump start into that album was just really learning how to very rapidly grasp onto Rostam's influences as well as Ariel's influences um and and his opinions on making music and their opinions on making music and Danielle's. They were the three producers on the album primarily. Okay. You know? Right. And so it was kind of them taking the lead in terms of the sonic sculpting of the album and me really quickly learning how they like things done and how to just kind of like work with them to get these sounds as quick as possible. And so, yeah, within the first couple of weeks, I was just like spending a lot of times with the like session starts of the songs that had already been kind of started before I got there and just learning like okay this is how they like things this is where this song is kind of going in terms of vibe um, this is how Rostam likes recording acoustic guitars he almost never is going to record something mono with one microphone okay you know hmm. it's got to be stereo so that was kind of that was a crazy thing to me you know like up until that point an amp was fine an amp to me was finding the best microphone sometimes it's a 57 sometimes it's a u87 you know and throwing it on there and getting the best sound that you can get and that was just a big old no-no we were getting some stereo sounds whether uh whether i liked it or not we were getting a lot of room sounds which i wasn't accustomed to getting up until that point
0: okay um that's not really details i could go into details if no, you no, want no. but <laughs> no no that's exactly what what i'm looking for you know it's like I guess what, what's interesting to me is how you have to adapt your process, obviously, to the person you're working with. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think about producing and music engineering a lot like the way that directors on film sets work, because often you'll get multiple problems from different people on completely unrelated issues. So, you know, the, the lighting designer comes to you and says, hey, you know, we have this electrical problem or we have this issue. And then someone else comes to you and says... Oh, listen, you know, we have a child actor on set and they can only work for three more hours. And you have to find a way to deal with all these issues and do it, you know, number one, on budget and do this in an economical fashion in a way that's professional and get the result that you want to get. And that sounds a lot like what you're talking about, where you have to go into the session and it's like, oh, wow, they want to record this like this. And they, you know, they're going to get a lot of this kind of sound, which means I have to adapt to the way that I you know, do something on the mixing board. So that's kind of what I'm interested in absolutely talking about with you. Right.
1: Yeah. And and to your point of how it's extremely similar to a great director and their ability to, adapt to those situations and make do with what they have and and get the best product out you know that's really what i think separates people like rostam and ariel and their ability to work with me as their engineer you know and the artist and the both of their different um differing opinions and stuff like that and the people that are really great at producing a record is yeah taking all of those different factors and all of the things that you have to deal with with um, having upwards of 12 people making one song at the same time and getting everyone to play their role the best they can. But I'm I'm definitely along for the ride, too, of, like, making sure that I play my role as well as I can by latching on to their opinions on Sonics and their way that they like tracking because they're great engineers in their own right as well definitely just like open ears no ego don't get too tied to your opinion of what you think it should sound like you know Mm. provide it when it's asked and never let it be a detriment to the quality that it could be the artist is always right and the next in line the producer is always right so Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so you're there to serve both of them and you gotta you gotta do what they need to get the sound that you need.
0: Yeah. Open ears, no ego. That that's a that's a motto for sure. Uh for a lot of things. That is my
1: motto. <laughs> Throw in a mouth shut in a, <laughs> in a lot of in a lot of situations too. Open ears, you know. mouth
0: shut, no ego. <laughs> that's great. You know, this is where I wanted to get into sort of a more philosophical question and maybe you can use the, you know this Heim record as an example and maybe we can sort of work through this you know I've been thinking a lot about from an acting standpoint like the extent to which my performance is just a product of the text like what's on the page itself and yeah. you can almost get to the point where you feel like you you're not acting anymore you're just serving the text And the performance comes directly out of it, and you're not imposing any agenda on it at all. Whereas, on the other hand, or even sometimes simultaneously, you can be in that same situation, and your version of it, your take on it, is different than anyone else's take is going to be. Because you have a different lived experience, and you're just in that moment differently than anyone else is. And I think about like a producer's role as being number one to sort of just capture the sound of the musicians or the vocalist or whatever the ensemble is. But then the producer also has this role in having their own sound. I mean, you were talking about how your friends were listening to some demos that you and Jesse made and that they can hear both of you on it, which I find really, really interesting. And just as like some context, you know, I think a lot about a producer like Brian Eno, who's like an artist in his own right and who produced Coldplay and U2, who, when you listen to the records that Coldplay does without him, and then you listen to the records where he was producing it, they're very different. And you can absolutely tell, oh yeah, this is Eno's influence right here. So I guess going to more of the producing side, but we can maybe even talk about this as an engineer or a mixer. How do you think about that paradox of like trying to, capture the best sound you can but also then you have your own sound that you're you're putting into it totally
1: yeah uh, paradox is a great word for sure because because it is and it's so tricky and i think where where you can kind of get in too deep in this cyclical thought of imparting the sound but serving the artist and the music you know Mm -hmm. is when you think too hard about it And you're like (laughs) worried about it almost is when you can kind of get yourself down about it. I think the giants of our industry who people equate to having like their signature sound will be the first to tell you like I didn't even know that I was doing that. I didn't even know that people thought that of me until like it was over, you know. And then Mm. all of a sudden, like, everyone's talking about that. And then they kind of take a step back and they go, oh, yeah, like, I guess I was doing that. But it wasn't incredibly intentional, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so what it comes down to is once you get to that point where people do consider that you have a sound, they want to work with you because of that sound. These people who are so amazing at what they do and have that sound and are able to produce it in such an incredible way on the music that they work on, everyone involved in that wants it to happen. So they don't have to think about it too much. That's just my opinion.
0: Well, it's amazing how many, how many of these decisions come down to efficiency. We, we have a desired result in our head. You know, we can hear it in our heads. And then we have to be like, how can we get that to happen? And who's going to help me do that? you know, in a way that's efficient and proficient for that matter. Yeah. Uh, And,
1: and fun and and like, is going to be a good time, you know, I think is another, another thing about that too. Like this isn't so much of a sound, but comes down to like a personality thing as well, where there's some hard ass producers out there in the world that are not sugarcoating anything. Yeah. Just like hardcore about, about the process of making a song and sometimes the artist needs that. They need that, like, really heavy-handed push mm-hmm. to, like, put push their record across the finish line, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and in some other cases, the artist is going to know that, like, I need the chillest vibe of all time to make this record. And so I need someone that's going to fit that bill. I need someone that's going to be okay with just, like, hanging out for a few hours and then, like, starting a song after talking about politics for an hour and just, like, having that come out of me. Yeah, that's not really a sound, um, but but it's also just, like, a reasoning for someone wanting to work with you. The other thing that I just want to make clear is that continuously improving and like learning what you are good at kind of like becomes your sound I suppose because if you're working on music mixing specifically and you find these tips and tricks that make your workflow really fast and make the song come out the way that you hear it in your head of how it should sound then that's going to be like kind of your template in your brain of how you're going to go about doing things and as you improve and expand on that template in your brain of how to complete the project it's going to like solidify that that's the way that you work and you're going to be known as the person that works that way and so I think that kind of like inherently whether you're trying to or not just makes you gain like the
0: sound that that you
1: are known for
0: you know it reminds me of a a conversation or maybe it was a master class that uh my drum set teacher Peter Erskine gave and I think someone asked him you know you're I think he was like 61 62 you know you're getting older like why what gets you up to come play drums again in front of us again, you know, year after year after year, right? Like why? And he said, the truth is I, I enjoy improving. Like I enjoy that I can work on this today and I can be a little better at it. Just a little bit better, just a little bit more refined, just a different take on it than I had the previous day. The fact that I feel like I'm still improving at the drums and I still have things to learn, enjoying that is key and I think about that a lot that sometimes you don't have to overthink it like you were saying you don't have to overthink like what's my sound or or where am I you know you just have to sort of figure out like how can I be better at the job I'm doing like how can I find ways to improve and then through that improvement you you find that you those things happen you know you have an opinion all of a sudden and you didn't even realize it you know something that is kind of interesting to get into is also like the the economics of doing this job. So just today it's it's very different, and the music industry is very different than it was twenty years ago. And the way we make money, or or I guess a better way of putting it, is the way that we support ourselves is very different than it is than it was twenty years ago. So just talk about what like what it's like in you know being a producer or an engineer, where you actually get paid from and how that works out. How do you make a career doing this?
1: Yeah, so so I I have the full-time job that's five days a week engineering, you know, that I go in maybe around noon. And on most days, I'll be home by eight or nine. And in the morning, I'm waking up and I'm working before I go. And in the night, I'm coming back and working after I get back, you know? <laughs> on my freelance projects you Mm -hmm. know which is what i think so many of us creatives are are doing right now one because we love it you know because you Mm -hmm. or there's usually a separation between like the project that you're on right now and the project that you're really excited about that like isn't has no deadline you know so like you're trying to squeeze in a couple hours a week on the passion project that you're really excited about and um and then the project that like you're on salary for you're getting paid for consistently and stuff like that you know people our age were just kind of down to be like our our hands in multiple pots of honey you know Mm -hmm. that you got to be around and you got to be working on different things all at the same time and you got to have different streams of income coming in and you also have to be in different worlds of engineering um mixing producing writing you know you can do all of these things at the same time you can be crazy like you and be Acting, music, <laughs> podcasting all at the same time, which is just like bananas in my brain of how, <laughs> how you can manage that. You know, it's Thanks. incredible. I try, <laughs> you know, but, I'm, I'm figuring
0: it out as I go, to be honest with you.
1: Literally, we're all just figuring out as we go. Um, you definitely have to like really love what you're doing to keep yourself as busy as you need to be to be monetarily successful, whether that be successful to your personal being, you know? But yeah, in terms of just paying your rent, you got to love what you're doing.
0: You got to love what you're doing because you got to do it a lot. And yeah, you know, I I try to impart this to, to my friends who are not as artistically inclined or who are not pursuing the arts as a career that our job really doesn't end, you know, in working hours. I mean, it really starts when you wake up and it ends when you go back to sleep. And that can be good. It can also be very frustrating and it can be tough to have to set boundaries for yourself in terms of when is the time to rest, which, I, you know, I'm more and more interested in as, as I go is just understanding how this like new gig economy is working for us or working against us, perhaps, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, just in terms of like the the way producers used to work, that some of this is just from my knowledge in terms of music industry and, and whatnot. Like I said, you know much more than I do. But, you know, you would often like be hired by the record label. Like, and you had some level of like unionization too. Like there's like a musician's union or, or a union for engineers or for producers. And those things have sort of gone by the wayside today when you've got so many different producers, like you said, producing out of their bedrooms, out of their garage, and some of that is is for the better for sure. A lot of it's for the better because there's a little bit more of a sort of this democratization of music where if you want to make something, you can get it done. Like it didn't used to be that way in the 70s. You know, you had to you had to go to the record company and beg them to, you know, <laughs> to to give you an advance to go record this thing. So, I guess my question to you is like if you could change something about the way you have to work today to make money. If you could change mm. something, what would it be? Because I know you love doing what what you do, but I, you know, I'm sure that there are those days when you you're thinking to yourself, wow, I'm working really, really hard and rent is still very, very hard to pay.
1: You bring up such a good point in that the incredible technological advancements that we've had in the last decade, the last 20 years or so has been pushing us towards this new way of freelance working gig economy whatever you have it where you know back in the day like you finished the session for the day and the music's all on the tape the tape isn't leaving the studio you know no one's working on the record after you leave the studio right like the movie is on film it's in the camera still you're not going home to edit on your computer Mm. back then you know whereas all of a sudden today you can book a 12-hour session and you leave the studio with the session with the whole song and i come home and i want to listen to that shit i want to like immediately like throw myself back into it but it's one in the morning and maybe it would be best for my mental health to go to sleep because i have to be back at the studio at 9 a.m There's this expectation of speed and this expectation of immediacy that has never been as apparent as it is right now, where luckily it doesn't happen to me that frequently, but it definitely does every now and then where someone will text me and they say, or someone will email me and say, hey, I would love for you to mix this song. I would also love for it to come out on Friday and it's Tuesday, you know? (laughs) Because it's trending on TikTok right now, yeah. and I have a million hits, and by Monday, I'm going to be a nobody again, mm-hmm. you know? So we got to hit this right now. And it's possible, but is it necessary? I don't know, because this may sound rude, I suppose, but if it's a great song that's going to speak to people, I kind of have an opinion that it will speak to people someone a week from now like a week later than the than the artificial due date that you've set in your brain
0: i think what you're saying about expectation is really key it's like it can be done but should i be expected to have it done like should we be expecting ourselves to be putting out this much content all the time and and what is that doing to us yeah, um. <laughs> you know, like both on in terms of people who have to produce it, but also people who have to consume it. So it's just something that I'm considering more and more like just how to deal with this. And of course, the world is kind of pushing us in one way. And if, if we want to keep doing what we love, we, we have to kind of get on board. And like you said, like fulfill your role in, in the best way you can. When you're talking about, you know, getting something on Tuesday and having to put it out on a Friday, it's both exhilarating and kind of amazing that, that we can do that today. And at the same time, it, it breaks my heart slightly that that's the new expectation, you know? Exactly. Exactly. When you get to work on an album like this Heim album, and I'm assuming that went on for months, right? That must have been at least a couple of months worth of process, no? Oh, yeah. And we
1: missed many deadlines, three or four, maybe, you know? But that kind of like hammers home the point, too. Like, it still came out. The coronavirus did kind of like play a role in that, in that it, where it was supposed to come out on X date and it got pushed until June. We missed the vinyl pressing date because it wasn't done. Like artists wasn't happy, producers weren't happy yet, and it, and it wasn't quite there. But I imagine that everyone involved in it, including the suits behind it, are thankful that we took that time to do the little minute perfectionist stuff to it yeah and and didn't have that like deadline being an end all be all you know at some point you get to you get to a date where you get the email and it says this record will be done on this day there are no, there are no ands, ifs, or buts about it, you know. And at right. that point, you're like, okay, cool. Flipping between the melodyned and the auto-tuned version of this lead vocal, like, has to stop, you know. Right. And we <laughs> have to, to stop. We have to figure it out. <laughs> so you do arrive at that point. It there's a lot of love and time put into it, and and that's something that can really make a great product.
0: Well, Joey, it was such. A pleasure to have you with me. Thank you so much for talking with me about what you do. And congratulations again on the Grammy nomination. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing what happens at, at the Grammys. And I, I very much hope I can say that, you know, that this album wins. Because I, I really love this Heim album. It's really fantastic. Dude,
1: thanks so much, man. Yeah, really appreciate you wanting to talk to me. And uh, really appreciate you doing what you do in spreading this knowledge to other artists like myself and to people that don't do what we do it's really cool
0: you can subscribe to art in all its Forms, the podcast and the newsletter at art all its you can also subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps and if you want to send us a question or comments or concerns uh, please email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's aiaifpod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.